This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to the July edition of One Month to a Better Compliance Program. This month, we're going to focus on One Month to Better Internal Controls. This month's sponsor is Workiva, and first, I'd like to have a word from our sponsor. Thanks, Tom. Workiva delivers a modern internal control solution that connects risk and internal control information across the enterprise. The WS Cloud Platform is collaborative, powerful, and intuitive, and optimizes documentation, testing, approval, and reporting processes. The platform is proven to increase productivity and drive better decision-making, and is used by more than 2,800 organizations worldwide for financial reporting and ICFR processes. To learn more, visit www.workiva.com. Over the next month, I'm going to explore several topics related to internal controls. We're going to take a look at what internal controls are and how they relate to a best practices compliance program. I'm going to help you understand how to design an internal controls regime for compliance and then some of the specific internal controls for the functional disciplines within a corporate compliance program. We're going to take a look at the COSO 2013 framework around internal controls and explain how that integrates into your best practices compliance program. I think it'll be a fascinating uh, month for you. We'll certainly uh, explore the area of internal controls in depth. This podcast, One Month to a Better Compliance Program, is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Day 5, Assessing Internal Controls for International Operations. Today I want to discuss how to assess your internal control regime for international operations. It is incumbent that you need to review such information so you can understand the financial and operational structure of an entity and how the financial and operational structure outside the United States is integrated with the corporate headquarters or the U.S. business unit's financial and operational structure if the foreign operation is part of a U.S. business unit. You could certainly begin with the Transparency International Corruption Perception Index to gain a greater sense of the reputation of the country in which your business unit is located, as well as the CPI score for all the countries in which the location either markets business or has current customers. Another area for inquiry or review is the scope of your operations at a location outside the U.S. This means you need to consider your sales model, whether employee-based or primarily utilizing third-party representatives. You will also need to consider if such third parties are coming into a commercial relationship with your company through your supply chain. Other areas of inquiry which could be considered, including whether your company has finance and accounting staff producing financial statements that are integrated into your parents' financial statements, whether your international business locations utilize a local bank for local sales receipts as well as funds transferred from the U.S., and whether the account has local check signers and whether dual signatures are required on the checks. You may also want to consider the extent to which local disbursements are made in local currency and, of course, always ask the question, is there a local petty cash fund? As with many other areas around internal controls, it is important to consider the local delegation of authority and whether it's consistent with your corporate delegation of authority. Some of the considerations regarding the local delegation of authority should extend to which corporate or U.S. business unit approvals are required for transactions initiating locally, such as the approver of vendor invoices, the disbursement of funds, the execution of lease facilities, and execution of contracts with agents. Finally, approval for transfer 
excuse me, approval of pricing and credit terms to customer and distributors. You should review whether the local delegation of authority provides appropriate seg- segregation of duties at the local business level. You should consider how sales of product are conducted. For example, is an inventory maintained at a local operation for the shipment to customers? Are products dropped, shipped from U.S. directly to the customers uh, at local operations? Are products dropped, shipped to distributors for delivery for, to the ultimate customer? Never forget that distributors are a key source of potential FCPA exposure, and several companies have come to grief over their utilization of distributors. So the government is taking a hard look at that distribution method. Hopefully, if you're already doing some of the above, you should review what is being done to determine if employees or local contractors who are local nationals have gone through your due diligence process so that they have been properly vetted to determine whether they are government officials or any capacity or indeed even relatives of government officials. Along the lines of a more formal FCPA analysis, you should review to see if there has been any investigation of alleged fraud, any compliance violations at the location, and if so, what were the results of the investigation. In the area of customers, you should review with whom each international location does business to determine the extent to which its current customers are local government entities, as well as to the extent to which the location is pursuing sales activities for other local government entities. If there has not been an assessment, a sufficient assessment of controls, the compliance professional must then decide how best to determine whether the local controls are sufficient to satisfy the requirements of anti-corruption laws such as the FCPA or the UK Bribery Act and accurately reflect all transactions and prevent concealment of improper transactions. Some of these considerations would be an inadequate segregation of duties because of separation of responsibility for physical custody of an asset from related record-keeping keeping in is a critical control. In practice, this means the person who can authorize purchase orders, i.e. purchasing, should not be capable of processing payments, i.e. accounts payable. It would seem to be a pretty basic segregation of duty yet in international locations because of the lack of number of people, sometimes uh, this occurs. Further, the employee prepares a deposit, should not post the receipts to customer account. You should look to see if there is an inappropriate access to assets. If there is internal controls, they should be created to provide safeguards for physical objects such as inventory and cash, restricted information, critical forms, and update applications. This means that an employee who needs to view computer information should be restricted to read and file scan access and should not be granted write and create access. More of the controls should prevent the authorized removal of sale inventory and movable fixed assets from the premises of the company. It's not necessary to prove that a bribe has been paid in order to have an enforcement action against a company for violation of the internal controls provision of the FCPA. And and the SEC enforcement action against Smith & Wesson, that was the situation. The lack of effective internal controls, it was the lack of effective internal controls, not the payment of bribes that was the basis for the civil action. This means you should look to Make certain the situation is not one of form over substance where controls can appear to be well-designed but lack substance, as is often the case with required approvals. Such situation could arise in several different scenarios. The first is where an account manager's signature attests to the accuracy of the payroll voucher information, but the account manager does not have the assurance of the supporting document 
supporting Thompson records, whether they're accurate and whether the approval process lacks substance. Other examples are where a supervisor approves expense reports but routinely does not look at the supporting documentation, a country manager provides a true control as an approver, or where the country manager or local finance manager has the ability to conceal the true nature of transactions without detection by anyone else. Another important area involves sales and compensation for the international business unit in question. On the sales side, Mixon suggests that you review the three-year historical record of the sales location and what are the budgeted sales for the upcoming year. This can give insight into the relative pressure on employees to grow the business and accordingly, the possibility of employees seeking a bribe is a good way to grow the company sales in that particular geographic area. These inquiries can lead to questions about compensation, such as what is the sales compensation incentive plan for local sales personnel and the country manager, as this inquiry gives insight into the possibility of personal benefit which might result from someone paying a bribe in order to win a contract, which results in larger sales incentive compensation to the employee. All of these reviews, questions, and inquiries, and indeed analyses are designed to locate the pressure points involved in a company's sales process. This is because pressure is the key element of occupational fraud, and the risk of fraud, including corruption, increases as pressure increases. Since corruption is viewed as a subset of fraud, it might be a good time to review the fraud, fraud triangle, which lays out the breeding ground for fraud in the corruption context. And that fraud triangle is pressure, rationalization, and opportunity. Pressure is the pressure to meet financial goals, whether it's personal or business. Rationalization is that a fraud perpetrator often rationalizes that they are not a criminal and committing fraud for personal benefit. The perpetrator intends to repay the money. And when committing fraud for the company benefit, the perpetrator rationalizes that the company really wants it to, to meet its sales goals and the perpetrator's actions are in furtherance of the company's goal. And finally, the opportunity. The perpetrator must be in the situation where the internal controls do not prevent fraud and therefore its necessary concealment. So what are today's three key takeaways? Number one, as a compliance professional, a chief compliance officer, or a compliance practitioner, you must understand the financial and operational structure of your company and how the financial and operational structure outside the U.S. is integrated into corporate headquarters. In other words, it's mandatory that you be able to read a spreadsheet. Number two, are your financial statements and reporting systems integrated? This is not something that the compliance practitioner will often consider yet. It's absolutely critical to the prevention of fraud and corruption. Finally, do not forget that corruption is a subset of fraud. And as fraud is covered most uh, well in the fraud triangle, familiarize yourself with the fraud triangle. It's three components, pressure, rationalization, and opportunity. This is Tom Fox. Hope you've enjoyed day five of one month to better internal controls, and hope you'll join me tomorrow for day six. This is Tom Fox again. Hope you've enjoyed this episode of One Month to Better Internal Controls. If you've listened to this podcast on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate this podcast as it would help in our rankings. Get the word out about the only one-month podcast series which enables you to design, implement, and enhance a better compliance program. Also, if you have any questions, please feel free to contact me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. This is Tom Fox. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you'll join us again tomorrow.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.